Uh, we have our election coming up, and I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I, I think maybe we could post a sermon that I did back in, probably back in June, or maybe it was uh, July. Uh, it was entitled, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, and maybe we could post that, talking to our sound team back there, um, or maybe someone can let Jessica know. We could put it back up on Facebook. I think we had 14,000 views of that sermon on Facebook. Um, and so encourage you to, to check that out because it kind of talks about in that message uh, sort of what's at stake if we lose our liberties. And we have the privilege of really voting away our own freedoms in this country. We have the, the, the privilege to vote for our freedoms, to maintain our freedoms, or to give up our freedoms. And so, but why would we want to give up our freedoms? Why would we want to vote our freedoms away? Uh, that's just kind of a contradiction. So um, I encourage you to check out that video uh, give me liberty or give me death, and uh, we'll, we'll put it back up online. But I do want to read a scripture here. I want to also read a prayer that was sent to me from a friend of mine uh, who is a uh, Christian psychologist and a really good man, godly man. And he sent out an email to a whole bunch of people, pastors and others of us, uh, last night. And it's a really, really uh, encouraging prayer and reminder that God is in control. I won't read the whole thing to you because it's kind of long. Uh, we'll try and put it up on our uh, social media pages. I'll try and post it up there later today or tomorrow for everyone so you'd have the whole thing. But I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where we are encouraged and exhorted to pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, says this. Therefore... I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved <clears throat> and to come to the knowledge of the truth." And so we are, we are exhorted and encouraged to pray for all men, and that also includes um, the people in government, because they have tremendous power over our lives, really. Um, whether, whether you have a monarchy like a king, or whether you have a democracy or a constitutional republic like we have in America, uh, these elected officials or these rulers have tremendous influence over our lives. And so we are to pray for them. We are to pray uh, for them that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence uh, because we want to be able to share the gospel. We want to be able to live for Jesus and tell people about Jesus Christ because God desires all men to be saved. And, of course, this was written by Paul the Apostle under uh, Nero, under the, the evil emperor Nero who was ruling over Rome. Nero would later have him imprisoned and, and would have him beheaded, uh, Paul the Apostle. So, but we're still supposed to pray for our leaders, whether or not we agree with them. And we are to trust that, you know, the Lord is going to work things out regardless of what happens in this election. Uh, there are a lot of people who are taking up, ready to take up arms. They're ready to uh, have a civil war and, and, and literally shed blood on the streets of America if the election does not go the way that they want. God forbid that Christians would get involved in that sort of thinking, that we would go out there in the streets with our guns and start killing other Americans because 
of an, the results of an election. Uh, let that be other people, but not the church of God. Jesus told Peter to put down the sword. He, he said, don't take up the sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. When Peter took up the sword to cut off uh, the ear of, of the high priest's servant in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, you know, in, in the end, guys, we have to trust the Lord. And to some degree, um, the government that we get is the government we deserve to some degree. Now, we may not like that. But then again, if we're a wicked nation, why would God give us righteous governors and government if we're a wicked people? You know, a wicked people don't deserve righteous government. A righteous people do deserve righteous government, uh, but we're not really a righteous people anymore in America. So really, we need to preach the gospel and people need to get saved and we need to get back on track in righteousness and holy living uh, and, and living our lives not for the things of this world but for our King Jesus Christ and for the life that is to come that really counts. Not this life but the eternal life that we have in Christ. And if we were a righteous nation, in a democracy it's 51%. So if 51% of the people in America loved Jesus with all of their heart and wanted to please the Lord, we would have godly, righteous leaders at, at every level of government. But the reality is, especially for example in states like California, uh, look at all the babies that we abort. Look at the laws that are passed from Sacramento. Uh, our legislatures are, or legislators are making laws to uh, help kids to change their sex at age 8, 9, or 10 without notifying the parents going through sex change therapies and hormone therapies. Uh, abortions for girls without even notifying their parents, taking them to Planned Parent uh, clinics and aborting the babies. Uh, destroying traditional marriage in this, country, in this state and in this country. Uh, on and on it goes. All of the rules where the government says the churches can't meet uh, and yet everybody else can go indoors to go shopping or go do whatever they want to do, but you can't come to church and sit inside of a building. That is, you know, that's, that's t total bias against the church. And it's not fair. But these are the people that we elected. We put them in Sacramento, the majority of Californians elected for this Senate, this assembly, and this governor. And so they have the power to make these laws. As a matter of fact, they have a super majority. The minority can't even stop them because there's such a majority of these, uh, I would say, godless politicians in Sacramento. And so that is to some degree our own fault. To some degree, the church has sat on the sidelines for far, far too long and uh, not been involved in the process. So um, whatever the results of this election on uh, November 3rd, we have to trust that the Lord is in control and that he still has a plan for us, for his church, and for our nation. We are called to pray uh, for godly leaders, and uh, we, we uh, are to pray for all of our leaders, actually, because God wants all men to be saved. I want to read a little bit of this prayer to you here quickly from Dr. Charles Browning. He's an older gentleman now. He's probably in his early 80s. The last time I saw him was down in uh, Long Beach probably four years ago maybe. And uh, he, became, he became a good friend of mine. He was, he was there for me when I was going through a tough time personally. A uh, real encourager. And he sent out this wonderful prayer. And I'm just going to read an excerpt to you. <clears throat> And this is a prayer that he says he's praying right now and he just wanted to share it with all of us. And I'm just going to read some of it, not the whole thing. Dr. Charles Browning from the Foundation for Applied Biblical Counseling. He says this, As you say in 1 Peter 1.22, Holy Spirit, take the truth, your word, and use it to purify our hearts so your love and wisdom will take over. 
Forgive us for defiling ourselves with man's sick and dark ways. You say those who make friends with the world make themselves ignorantly the enemies of you. Thank you for redeeming us from this corruption and this idolatry of spending more time drinking in the media toilet than in the fountain of living waters in your word. You, the living word, waiting for us to open that door that you talk about in Revelation 3. Then cause us to hear your voice alone and to flush the toilet of all those other counterfeit voices we've been exposing ourselves to all these too many weeks and months. And since you create still, create in us your people an allergy for anything that grieves or quenches your loving heart, so we turn away fast as we do other more obvious enemies. Hallowed be your name, all that you are, there to meet all that we need, every single moment in love and mercy and grace. That's what your name is. Thank you for forgiving us, for turning a thousand different ways to meet our needs on our own, looking to miserable and pitiful men, even powerful men, to meet our needs. We are so seduced by power and personality, style and hype, publicity and spin and lies and mind control manipulations of man on every side, on every channel, in all the anti-social media. And as you patient patiently knock on and knocking outside of us as we ignore for these narcissists and lusters for power, how we thank you for your patience with us, your chosen dumbbell sheep. We sure don't deserve that kind of love, but such is grace. May all that you are be all that we need in every way, regardless of who you choose to exalt on the 3rd of November. May we rest in watching you care for us, your dear children, and make that all that matters to us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So often we forget that you told us in Genesis 1 and 2 that you made us in your own image. And even more often, we ignore that you at that same time said as your chosen people, we are to be fruitful, multiply, but just as important to subdue the earth and have dominion to rule over it, not to be ruled by it. In Luke chapter 10, you gave us authority over all the works and forces of darkness. In Matthew 16, you tell us that we will overcome them and the gates of hell will not prevail against your people. In Proverbs 18, you tell us to pursue our enemies and beat them down as dirt in the street, dust before the wind, since that's all they're worth anyway. And in so many places, you say you have put Satan and his rank and file under our feet, now, not someday. All absolutely true about us, your chosen people, us, are a fierce and powerful army. But do we act like it? Forget it. We're so flooded with the overflowing toilet of the world's pollutions, we give all the power away to those sold out to the world's corrupt system, letting them, not you, tell us how to think and live in fear or dread or what if, like a bunch of beat-up slaves or lemmings listening to brain-dead drones on TV or Facebook or Instagram, Twitter or clueless texts from clueless souls. 
Father, you say in Psalm 103 that you as king are enthroned in the heavens and your kingdom rules over all, sending your angels to do your word. Wake up your army of sleeping or seduced or apathetic and abused by the world children and cause us to rise up and fight back in the spirit in prayer, in praise, and in Jesus' mighty name, come against all the evil spirits speaking through evil men that are determined to take us captive to do their will. Like you did with Peter in prison in Acts chapter 12, send your angels to wake up and stir up your people to have a fierce and passionate zeal to use their vote to express their voice and to choose those you alone desire to lead this nation regardless of all the con and spin and lying manipulations of man. Who cares about what man thinks? All those polls of what people's thinking. What a sad substitute for what you say and letting that settle it. Praise your name for forgiving us for this well-disguised idolatry, listening to man day and night and the idiot self recycling that vomit from man and the world's godless system. Your will in your kingdom is about righteousness, joy, love, and peace, all controlled by your spirit, protecting unborn babies in their mother's sacred wombs. You are disgusted by division, violence, and hatred, all forms of Satan-infused pride in man's souls, and the win-lose competitive spirit of the world that so saturates all about politics. This must so grieve your heart, Father. So since you desire, we ask that on earth as it is in heaven, where you hang out, you cause the outcome this Tuesday that makes that happen, that puts on display your will being carried out. You rule and reign over all this madness and divided land. You say in Proverbs 21 that you turn the hearts even of kings wherever you choose. You also say in Psalm 75 that promotion doesn't come from man, but only from you. So Lord, go for it. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Turn the hearts of men and women all over this land, whithersoever you will. So the outcome is not of man, but only your will being done right here, right now your way hallelujah and then cause us to be at peace and content and full of praises for that outcome on november 4th knowing that your will is being done remembering too to pray for half this country who will be so bummed out and full of anger or resentment and sorrow upon fear wrapped in confusion and depression Help us not to forget to pray for those hurting souls you love so much, those who trust in man with all their hearts instead of you. Use the outcome of this election to revive your church, take our eyes off of, the temp off of temporary man, and lead us back to the cross. Recreate newfound trust only and always in you alone. Thank you, Jesus, for this is your decision, the results of this election, as you have mercy on our nation, and especially over your chosen children, the helpless sheep of your pasture, till you come and take us home, our true home, where we really belong. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. In Jesus' all-powerful name.
He is a brilliant, remarkable PhD psychologist, great, great, great godly man, and that is only less, probably less than half of his whole prayer. So I just edited it down just so that I could keep it shorter. But we will put that, whole, that entire prayer of his, Dr. Charles Browning, onto our social media pages. So you can pray this, this and you could pray it with your family and you could share it uh, with those that you love. We also have um, uh, Mike Lynn, one of our elders, had uh, put together this little handout that's available for you to pray uh, for this election also. And these are available on the counter of the info center out there uh, in the foyer. And so I encourage you all to take home one of these. It also tells you about what socialists and socialism believes and, and what happens when socialism and socialists take over countries and governments and how serious it is uh, for the church in America really to, to wake up. Okay, so we are continuing here in Isaiah. We're going to actually start in Isaiah chapter 45 this morning. This is part two of a message we started last Sunday morning entitled Set My People Free. And we are looking at specifically God calling Cyrus 150 years before he was born, calling him by name to be the deliverer who would set his people, Judah, free from their captivity in Babylon. It's an incredible, incredible prophecy here. And uh, if you didn't hear last week's message, I encourage you to go back and listen to that because it ties in together here. Isaiah chapter 45. And we are in Isaiah chapter 14, as you know right now, um, on our expository study. So this is kind of like springboarding from Isaiah 14 uh, and 13 into Isaiah 45 where God is talking about judging Babylon. So Isaiah 45, let's just read verses 11 through 13. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands you command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens, and all their host I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways, and he shall build my city and let my ex exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts." So he's talking about a man that is going to be raised up in righteousness, that God is going to direct in his ways, and he will be one who sets his people free from captivity and bondage and who rebuilds his city. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at the judgment that was um, uh, proclaimed upon Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13 and then also really uh, there in Isaiah chapter 14. Uh, and that was a prophecy that was given approximately 715 years B.C. or 715, uh, uh, year, 715 years before Christ. That was the year that historians tell us King Ahaz died. 
Now, the interesting thing is the individual that he is calling out by name, named Cyrus, was not born for another 150 years. And the event that he's talking about, so this prophecy was given originally in 715 B.C. in Isaiah chapter 13, uh, but the prophecy wasn't actually fulfilled until around 538 or 539 B.C., so almost 200 full years later. And only God can call out names of people uh, 200 years before the event happens because God exists, as we looked at last week, outside of our space-time continuum. The prophecy that we're reading here in Isaiah chapter 45 was written approximately 712 B.C., so a few years after the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 13 and 14. So, but still, 150 plus years before Cyrus was ever born. If you read in Isaiah 44, 28, he calls this man Cyrus by name. He says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. You could even back up to verse uh, 26. He says, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built up. And I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. So this prophecy in Isaiah 44, uh, 26 to 28, and Isaiah 45, was written in 712 B.C., 712 years before Christ. And again, the event that is being predicted with the individual that God is naming did not happen until approximately 539 B.C. And so it's, it, this is actually one of the most incredible prophecies in the entire Bible. Bible critics and atheists, they try and attack this and say there's no way that Isaiah could have written all of this, naming this guy by name, uh, even before uh, the Babylonians had even been raised up as a nation uh, and been a powerful nation and conquered Judah and carried Judah away captive, much less the Medo-Persian Empire coming up to conquer Babylon. Because Medo-Persia uh, was not an empire yet. Babylon was not an empire yet. The Assyrians were the ones who were ruling over the Middle East at this time. But Jesus quoted from the book of Isaiah probably more often than any other book. Maybe, maybe Psalms would be comparable to the times quoted by Jesus. Uh, and Jesus quoted from the entire book of Isaiah, all different parts of the book of Isaiah. And so if you don't think that Isaiah wrote this, if you think that somehow someone else counterfeited this, or you know, like the atheist, skeptical, critical scholars of the Bible say that someone wrote this later after the fact, uh, you have a big problem if you call yourself a Christian because Jesus quoted this as though it were written by Isaiah. And so if Jesus says Isaiah wrote this, we know Isaiah wrote this because Jesus is God. He cannot lie. Uh, but again, the atheists and the skeptics, they, their mind can't understand. It blows their mind that God can predict the future and tell us exactly what's going to happen. And God says he's going to raise up this king. He calls him my shepherd. His name is Cyrus. He's going to perform my pleasure. He's going to rebuild Jerusalem. He's going to begin to rebuild the temple. It's interesting that he says here, Jerusalem will once again be inhabited. Uh, the cities of Judah shall be rebuilt, the waste places will be raised up, and the rivers will be dried up in verse 27. All of this was incredibly 
miraculously fulfilled specifically exactly as God through Isaiah predicted that it would happen. And it's one of the most incredible prophecies in the whole Bible. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see, this ties in with the prophecy being fulfilled in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, with King Belshazzar, with the finger appearing and the handwriting on the wall. That is the night that God fulfilled this prophecy that was given almost 200 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 45, verse 1, he says this concerning Cyrus. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight and I will break in pieces the gates of brawn, and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who called you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So God here is, is really declaring who he is after calling out all of the false gods and the false prophets in the earlier chapters as we looked at last week, Isaiah 41, Isaiah 43, 44, 45, 46, where God is saying, I am the Lord, there is no other. You know, tell me if your gods, your idols can predict the future and tell us what is coming. If your gods, tell us what's coming. And of course they could not. They're just uh, gods made by, by man and with man's hands. And God, in order to distinguish himself from the gods of the nation, says, I will tell you specifically what's going to come in the future. And this is exactly what happened. Exactly as God predicted it is exactly what ended up happening with Cyrus. Even though Cyrus didn't know the Lord, he, was, he says, uh, you know, that you're not, uh, I've called you by name, I've named you, even though you haven't known me. Now, historians, the historian Josephus, who is the great Jewish historian uh, who, who uh, uh, gave us a great record of the ancient times up through the time of the uh, 70 AD where the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and Josephus then wrote all of Israel's history as, as a record for the Roman uh, Caesars, really. But he, he is the one that tells us that Cyrus, actually, after he came in and conquered Babylon, that Daniel brought this book of Isaiah, and Daniel showed him the scroll, and Cyrus read his own name in the scroll, and that's when Cyrus says, well, I'll do whatever your God says I'm supposed to do here. You know, it's like, it's like Cyrus comes in, as we're going to see here in, 
and, and, and delivers God's people and, and conquers Babylon. And the Jews are in captivity in Babylon at the time. And they really have no hope of going home uh, under the Babylonian kings. And so Cyrus comes in and conquers Babylon. And Daniel comes up to him. He's an old man, Daniel, no doubt at that point, And shows him this prophecy and says, Our God named you and said you were going to come and do this to set us free. Now you're supposed to send us back to Jerusalem so we could go rebuild our temple. And that's exactly what Cyrus did, history records for us. Exactly as God said he would is, is what he did. Now there's a parallel back in Ezra. Isaiah is a prophetic book and Ezra is uh, more of a historical book. And so if you go back to the book of Ezra, and I'll read this to you, Ezra is right at the end of 2 Chronicles. So if you go to 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, at the end of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, the next book is Ezra. And Ezra chapter 1 records this proclamation by uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house or a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold. With goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. Verse 5 Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock. With precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. Verse 7. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Midrathath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And so incredibly, this is the record of the proclamation of the king that was predicted hundreds of years earlier by Isaiah the prophet. Again, historians tell us Daniel or some of the other uh, captives that were there when Cyrus came in and conquered Babylon, showed Cyrus the scrolls of Isaiah with the promises That God had named him, God had called him, God had raised him up, God had given him the treasures of darkness, God had dried up the river before him, God had opened up the gates, the bronze gates were open, the iron gates were shattered, uh, and that he was going to make this declaration to send his people back to go rebuild Judah and Jerusalem. And so Cyrus, the king of Persia, does exactly that. He makes this proclamation. As a matter of fact, 2 Chronicles 36 also records almost the exact same story and the same prayer. 
Now remember, uh, or the same uh, proclamation, remember that Assyria was the world power in 715 B.C., 712 B.C. Assyria was the powerful, dominant, ruling Gentile power over the Middle East at that time when Isaiah was writing the prophecy, not Babylon. Babylon would not become the world power until approximately 606 B.C. Uh, They they crushed uh, Nineveh, and uh, basically, which was the capital of Assyria, uh, in 607, 606 B.C., something like that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the general. He was the son of the king of Babylon, and Babylon was becoming the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And once they conquered Nineveh, uh, the seat of power of the Assyrian Empire, uh, Assyria was no longer a powerful nation. Uh, and they went kind of into the dustbin of history of all of the other powers that had gone before them, like, like Egypt and, and Mesopotamia and Samaria and the others. Um, and Babylon wouldn't last long as the world power. Uh, Medo-Persia would come in and conquer Babylon. And then the Medo-Persians wouldn't last more than a couple of hundred years because uh, the Greeks through Alexander the Great would come and take over uh, the, the known world specifically related to who would rule over Jerusalem and God's holy land, the holy people. And then uh, the, Greek Rome, uh, the Greek empire was broken up at Alexander's death. Alexander the Great died young, probably around 32 or 33 years old. Uh, and then his kingdom was split up to his four generals. And then the Romans eventually conquered uh, the Greek empire and controlled uh, Jerusalem and the holy land. And so God was uh, predicting these things before they happened. Really, they were, at the time that Isaiah was writing this, it was really unthinkable that Babylon would even be a power or a powerful nation. And yet God was calling them uh, into uh, power and he was going to call them into judgment. And even the Medo-Persians he called by name in Isaiah chapter 13. We know that the Jews were carried captive first in 609 B.C., from Jerusalem. They were taken by Babylon into captivity. That's where Daniel was taken into captivity, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's when Ezekiel was probably taken into captivity, and they were taken into Babylon. Uh, uh, Initially, Nebuchadnezzar did not want to destroy Jerusalem or conquer Jerusalem. He just wanted Judah to pay him taxes or to pay him tribute because, in essence, paying tribute to another king is saying, you're more powerful than we are. We can't fight against you, so instead of you conquering us, we'll buy you off. We'll pay you a tax. It's kind of like the mob bosses of the businesses in New York back in the day. Uh, you know, you, you pay them, and then that way you can operate without having something unfortunate happen to your business. So it was kind of the similar idea in the ancient world. They would pay tribute to the powerful kings so that they would not harass them or attack them. But the Jews rebelled, and they had wicked kings at the time who refused uh, to do what God wanted them to do. Matter of fact, God was telling them through the prophet Jeremiah to just go along with Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah told the Jews, he pleaded with them and said, God has raised this king up to punish us because of our idolatry. Do not rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. If you rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we're going to be destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. They didn't listen to Jeremiah. They listened to the false prophets. And in the end, uh, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was crushed by the Babylonians, destroyed, burned to the ground, the walls torn down, uh, very few left alive, a small remnant left alive, the vast majority were either killed or they were taken away captive for 70 years into Babylon. Now, after 70 years of captivity, Daniel remembered that God had 
predicted and prophesied through Jeremiah that after 70 years, they would come back into their promised land. And so Daniel is praying about this. It's recorded for us later in the book of Daniel. And he's uh, asking God about when they're going to return back to their homeland. And so what we read here uh, in Isaiah 45, where we started, is how God fulfilled that promise and that prophecy. That he brought the people back from 70 years of captivity exactly as he said he would. And he set his people free and they went back to the Holy Land. And they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt Judah and they rebuilt their cities Uh, and uh, they had this king, this pagan king that was predicted to come who made this happen, Cyrus. So if you turn with me to Daniel chapter 5, this is where this event is recorded for us, this handwriting on the wall event where Cyrus came in and conquered the impenetrable city of Babylon. In Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1, we read this. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. When he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father or grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine. They praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. At this time, the city of Babylon was already besieged by the Medo-Persian army. Uh, Cyrus, who was the general, was there at the gates of Babylon. But Babylon was considered to be impenetrable. Historians tell us that it was massive. It was 15 miles squared. So you had 15 miles by 15 miles by 15 miles. So a 60-mile space, 15 miles squared, with walls all around the entire place. 60 square miles with walls around the entire place. They had diverted the Euphrates River, historians tell us, to where they took a channel from the great Euphrates River. Uh, This is uh, modern-day Iraq, this area, modern-day Iraq, where the Euphrates River is. And they diverted a channel through engineering, because Nebuchadnezzar was a great builder and great engineer. He built, the, uh, he built the city of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He built the hanging gardens of Babylon, which became one of the seven ancient, most glamorous, glorious wonders of the world. The hanging gardens of Babylon were actually built for one of Nebuchadnezzar's wives, a Medo-Persian princess, who he had married, who missed her homeland. And so he built her this gorgeous Uh, unbelievable garden, apparently, from from the historical records. And he built the city of Babylon. So they took a channel of the Euphrates River and ran it right through the city, this 60-mile square city surrounded by walls, so they would always have a permanent source of fresh water so that they could never really be besieged. If you came, you couldn't cut off the water source of the Euphrates River. It was just impossible. So they could not be besieged by somebody cutting off their water source and just kind of, you know... uh, starving them out by by them thirsting to death. 
uh, and they had at least 20 years of stores of food, is what the historians tell us. So they knew they could outlast any army that would come there to try and besiege their city. The walls of Babylon, historians tell us, were 300 feet high, 30 stories high. 300 foot hall, uh, foot hall walls, the walls of Babylon, they were 80 feet thick. They had 250 guard towers around the top. You could see why they thought they were safe. It was impenetrable. Nobody could scale those walls. Nobody could break those walls. The walls went down, the brick under the ground, by another 30 or 40 feet under the earth, in addition to the 300 feet high, like 30-story buildings, all around the 60-mile square. It was impenetrable, so they felt that nobody could hurt them. They had a... a, a a source of water. They had 20 years plus worth of food stored in there. Uh, And so they felt safe no matter what anybody did on the outside. This is why the arrogance is, is, is so amazing of this young king that he just threw a big party. You know, while all these Medo-Persians are outside digging their foxholes and surrounding his city, he's like, hey, we're going to have a party. We're going to get drunk. We're going to have a feast because these jokers, there's no way they're going to get in. And so they were totally oblivious to the fact that God's judgment was about to come upon them. And this very night, this king would be killed. You notice here that this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the grandson, actually, I'm sorry, uh, Belshazzar, who was the grandson of the great Nebuchadnezzar, that he, uh, he crossed the line that God could not permit to be crossed. He called that they would bring the consecrated vessel that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem, the holy vessels that were used by the priests, consecrated for the service unto God, Yahweh Jehovah in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar respected other people's things and other people's gods, and he did not desecrate. Nebuchadnezzar did not desecrate these chalices and these gold and silver instruments and implements. He put them in storage, but his grandson was so arrogant And thought, you know, a lot of these kings thought that they were gods. They believed they were gods. And so he uh, blasphemed God in this way by taking these holy consecrated uh, vessels and using them in a drunken drunken uh, party here or, um, you know, uh, feast that he was having with him and all of his uh, wives. And a lot of commentators believe that it, it would have been um, a, a sexual event because he had all his concubines there with him, everybody drunk, everybody drinking, a thousand of his lords. Uh, and so that was it. God would not allow this to continue. So we read in verse 5, in that very same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. Remember that the prophecy, as you're going to see, the prophecy that God gave in 712 B.C. was exactly fulfilled as God had predicted. When God said that uh, you're going to go in, you're going to subdue nations. In Isaiah 45.1, he called him Cyrus. You're going to loose the armor of kings, uh, open double doors, the gates that will not be shut. Um, 
you're, you're going to, I'm going to give you the treasures that are in hidden places and so forth. God had predicted that all of these things were going to happen, and it's exactly what happened. So the uh, king is, is terrified. Literally, his, his knees are knocking against each other. That's how scared he was. This king that was so arrogant and cocky to take the vessels, the holy uh, consecrated vessels of Jerusalem and to use them for his drunken party. And then this hand appears on the wall. Now, he wasn't sure what the writing said. The writing was in Aramaic and he did not apparently, he wasn't able to understand what the message was. So he called his astrologers, he called, his, called out his wise men, his soothsayers and so forth, and he asked them to tell the interpretation of what the words meant and nobody could. So they ended up calling Daniel, who was the prophet that had uh, ministered there to his grandfather, um, Nebuchadnezzar. And was really well known. Apparently Daniel was well known. Pretty famous there uh, in Babylon as a wise man. And so he called Daniel, who would have been a, a very old man at this point, to come and to interpret this message of the handwriting on the wall. So we read in verse 22. Daniel says this to him. Daniel was probably in his 90s at this point. This would have been, again, around 539 B.C. He says this, but you, his son or his grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver, of gold, of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing, this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Teko, Eupharsin. And so Daniel is calling out this pompous, arrogant, drunken king. And saying, you have gone too far. You brought the vessels of God's house before you. You, your lords, your wives, and concubines have drunk wine. In other words, you became drunk with God's holy vessels. And you're praising the other gods while you're doing it. You're praising the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron. Iron and wooden stone, which are just dumb idols. They don't see or hear or know. They're uh, insensate. They have no breath in their lungs. And yet you're worshiping them and you're blaspheming the God who created the heavens and the earth, and he says, and 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 you do not you, the God who holds your breath in His hand, and who owns all your ways, you have not glorified. So no doubt, uh, as Daniel was there talking to him, his breath was was stenched with the stench of old wine. He had been partying for who knows how long, maybe weeks at this point, drunk and all the rest. And so his breath stunk and, uh, and, and, and you know, he's asking for, for someone to help him understand. He's scared to death. His knees are knocking to help him understand what this handwriting on the wall means. And, God, and, and Daniel says that the God who, who, who keeps your breath in his hand, in other words, God gave you breath and you're going to blaspheme him like this? I mean, it's amazing to me the patience of God with the people 
uh, in Hollywood that use Jesus' name as a curse word. I mean, they use the very God-given breath that God has given them breath and air in their lungs and keeping their lungs, uh, you know, breathing in oxygen and breathing out uh, the poisons and the carbon uh, dioxide out of our bodies. The very breath you're going to use, your voice, to blaspheme the God who created you, who created the universe, what arrogance that is and what great patience God has with us, with mankind, uh, who uh, use their voices to blaspheme. God gives the atheist the breath to say that there is no God. Think about it. If you were God, would you allow some little atheist uh, to shake their fist and say there is no God or say, worse yet, I am God? You're not God. I am God. Would you allow? Would you keep giving breath to that atheist? I mean, I probably wouldn't if I was God. But God is much more patient with people than we are. Thank God for this. Um, But at this point, uh, Belshazzar had crossed the line. And so God uh, basically wrote that his judgment had come. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, upharsin. Verse 26 says this of Daniel 5. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. So basically, he's saying your, your, your kingdom has been numbered, uh, Belshazzar. God has uh, numbered your kingdom and uh, your days are finished. You're, you're, you've run out of time. Uh, you're, 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 out of, you're out of days. Um, the Bible tells us that all of us, really, we live with borrowed time. Our days are numbered. We don't know how much time we have, but we know that the days of our life are a, a finite amount of time, whether it's 70 years, 80 years, 100 years. We know we're not going to live forever. Thank God I wouldn't want to live here forever in this world and in this body. But we know that our days are numbered. We just don't know uh, when our number is going to be pulled. We don't know when our appointment with death is. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment, the Bible says in the New Testament. We just don't know how many more breaths we have in our lungs or how many more hours we have or minutes or days, months or years that we have to live. Only God knows. But there is an appointment for all of us. And one day we will all go to meet our maker. In Psalm chapter 90, uh, the the uh, psalmist here is, is Moses, and Moses says this in verse 10 of Psalm 90. He says, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we all fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That should be our prayer for every one of us as God's people. Lord, teach us to number our days. Because so often we flippantly think we're going to have tomorrow. And there is no guarantee of tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. If today you should hear his voice, harden not your hearts, the Bible says. And we should live every day for the Lord and every day as though it might be our last day. Because guess what? It might be your last day. We do not know. But Belshazzar's number was pulled. His days had come to an end. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You're out of time, in other words, uh, King Belshazzar. Then he says this in verse 27 of Daniel 5. The second word is tekel. He says, you have been found, uh, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And so this is the idea of the scales of justice. Um, Many people think that somehow they're going to face God on judgment day. And if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, they're going to get to go to heaven. 
and they think that, you know, by doing a lot of good deeds, they know that they do things that are wrong, but they're not as bad, you know, as uh, a serial killer like Ted Bundy. They're not as bad as Hitler. So they compare themselves to Hitler and Ted Bundy or Ted Kaczynski, uh, you know, some terrible psychopath, and say, well, I'm not as bad as that. Therefore, I think I should go to heaven, and I think I'm a good person. I try and keep the golden rule. I try, don't want to ever do any wrong to people. Uh, and I think my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And so they think the scales of justice are going to be weighed, your good versus your bad. But that's not what the Bible says is the case. It's your, the comparison is not between you and Charles Manson. Uh, that, that's not the comparison. Because then any of us would say, well, I'm righteous, because look at Charles Manson. Uh, that's not the comparison. The comparison is between you and Jesus Christ. That's the scales of righteousness that we're all going to be judged on. So if you are not as righteous and you don't have as many good deeds as Jesus on the one side of the scale, then you will be found wanting to, and so will I, and you will not be allowed to get into heaven, and neither would I, uh, because none of us are perfect. Only Jesus is perfect, and perfection is the standard that is required if you want to go to heaven to be with God forever and ever, because there's no sin in heaven. It's only perfect all the time. And, and so if you bring sin with you, you can't go. So you have to deal with your sin. So if you are not as righteous as Jesus Christ, and what arrogance to think that anyone that would think that they're as righteous as Jesus Christ. I you know, tell people, if you think you're you know, as righteous as Jesus, go step out of a boat in the middle of a lake and see if you walk on water. We'll prove it real quick. If you can walk on water, maybe I'll believe you. But if you sink like everyone else, uh, you know that you're just a man. Give you five loaves and two fish, see if you could break them and feed 5,000 people. I'll bring you someone who's blind and see if you could, uh, you know, rub some spit in their eyes with mud and wash it out and see if they could see someone born blind. Or bring you someone who's paralyzed from the time that they're born and see if you could restore their spinal cord. Because Jesus did all of these things to prove that he is God. And so we know that we're sinners. We know that even if we weighed our good deeds against our bad deeds, our bad deeds would still be enough to keep us out of heaven. Because heaven is a perfect place. There's no sin at all. There's no evil uh, there in heaven. And so the scales of justice are not uh, good versus evil. Like, for example, when you see the scales of justice with Lady Justice up with the blinder on outside of courthouses, um, again, it's not the good outweighing the evil that, that man does. It's the law and then your actions against the law, whether or not you're found uh, to, to be breaking the laws of justice or the scales. So Jesus basically tells us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So then we have to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. We have to throw ourselves upon the grace of Jesus Christ. We have to cry out for salvation and take Jesus, whose righteousness was imputed or credited to us, and our sins were taken upon him and crucified upon the cross. If we want to get to heaven, the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other way to get to heaven except through faith in Jesus Christ. The scales of judgment here, he was weighed and found wanting in the scales of judgment. He says, you've been weighed in the balances, and you have been found wanting. You've come up short. Your days are numbered. Your number is being pulled. He continues in verse 28. He says, Perez... Remember, it was many, many teko you farsin. You farsin in Paris is uh, 
the plural of the word versus the singular of the word. Euphorsin is the plural, Paris is the singular, singular, and the word means divided. He says, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. We read in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians or Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Now remember, the Medo-Persian Empire was two empires that had come together to rule as one. The Medes, or the Median Empire, and the Persians, or the Persian Empire. And so you had two kings, Darius the Mede and uh, Cyrus the Persian, who were both mentioned in history as being rulers over the Medo-Persian Empire at this time. So we have Darius named here who was the Mede who received the kingdom, and we know that Cyrus was the general who conquered the city actually and came in to destroy uh, uh, Babylon and to conquer Babylon as was predicted back in Isaiah 44 and 45 and documented in the historical book of Ezra. And again, the Babylonian kingdom was divided. It was divided between two nations, the Medes and the Persians. And that very night that the handwriting was on the wall is the night that the prophecy was fulfilled. Coincidentally, it happened to be exactly 70 years from the time the first Jews were taken into captivity because God said, after 70 years of captivity, I'm going to send you back to your own land. They were taken initially in 609 B.C. This event happened in 539 B.C. I believe it's dated October uh, 16th, 539 B.C. That night is when uh, Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians. And so you see the amazing prophecies in the Bible, how they were predicted. And, and here's the incredible thing. The way that, that uh, Cyrus got into Babylon was that he actually went miles upstream He diverted the Euphrates River that they had diverted. He put up dikes and diverted the channel of the Euphrates River so that it would not run under the city walls of Babylon anymore. He put it back into the main Euphrates River, uh, dried up that, that riverbed so that the armies slipped in underneath. They slipped in underneath the walls by drying up the riverbed. The water level lowered. The people were all drunk. They were all partying inside. They snuck in. And there were walls actually even built on either side, historians tell us, big walls built on either side of the Euphrates River, the channel that was running, rolling, running through the city of Babylon. And so you had to either take boats across to cross from one side to the other to actually get into the city, uh, or you had to go over bridges. But the bridges were guarded, and they had gates of bronze and gates of iron that were closed at night. It just so happens that this very night, the guards must have been drunk, and they didn't lock the gates of bronze or the gate of iron. So the army was able to come in underneath the wall by def- uh, taking and, and, and channeling the Euphrates River uh, to another area, going underneath the wall, coming up and going over the bridges because the gates were left open, and then they just went and conquered. There was not even a shot fired. It wasn't even like there was a battle because the people were so uh, drunk inside, and they thought there's no way these guys can get in. Uh, And and that's exactly what God said that he was going to do. Remember, he said, uh, be dry. I will dry up your rivers in Isaiah 44, 27, speaking about him diverting the Euphrates River. He says he's my shepherd. He's going to rebuild Jerusalem. He says he's Cyrus, verse uh, 1 of 45, Isaiah 45. Cyrus, whose right hand I've held, subduing nations, loosing the armor of kings, or literally loosing the loins of kings is another translation. Remember? 
His knees were knocking. Uh, Belshazzar's knees were knocking uh, when the hand appeared on the wall, loosing uh, the loins of kings, opening before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. The gates were wide open when he came into the city of Babylon. All of these things happened exactly as God predicted they would happen. And that's why when Daniel came to Cyrus and showed him the scrolls, he said, well, whatever your God says I'm supposed to do next, just tell me and I'll do it for you. And that's exactly what he did that very night in 539 B.C. And then the Jews came back from Babylon and they rebuilt uh, their temple and they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem incredibly Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. This is where I want to wrap up, and then we're going to have our time of communion. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 says this. Jesus says this. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, we are so weighed down. Talk about scales and uh, our deeds. We are so weighed down by our sin. It just wears us out. You know, our sin is so difficult on us. It destroys us. Our sin destroys our health. Our sin destroys our relationships. Our sin destroys our mind. Our sin destroys our relationship with God. Uh, our sin destroys everything. It's, it's just destructive. And we get worn out. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. He also says in Revelation 3, 19 and 20, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He's crying out to us, come to me, come to me, all you who are worn out, weary, heavy laden, I'm going to give you rest. He says, I'm knocking at the door of your heart, and if anyone opens uh, his heart to me, I will come into him and dine with him and have fellowship with him and he with me. And so I encourage you today, uh, open your heart to Jesus. If you've never done that, maybe you're on the fence, or maybe you walked away from, from the church, you walked away from the Lord, I, I would encourage you, come home, come back to Jesus, come back to your heavenly Father as the prodigal son came back, and everything was restored. God loves you, God wants to save you, God wants to heal you, He wants to put the pieces of your life back together again, but you have to open the door to Him. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank You that You are the God who created everything. You're the God who created us. You're the God who gave us life. You're the God who called Cyrus by name 150 years before he was born. You're the God, Lord, who knows the future and knows what is going to happen in the future, and you tell us the future through the prophetic word of God. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to save lost men and women. You didn't come for, for the healthy, you said, but for the sick. So, Lord, we ask that we would once again surrender our hearts to you, Father. Perhaps there are some who have never truly trusted you, never repented of their sins and believed on Jesus for salvation. I pray you would do a work in each one's heart to he hear today, Father, that many, Lord, who are hearing this message would surrender their life fully to you, Lord, and that they would see what a blessed a fulfilled life it is to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, to be named by you, called by you, Lord, and to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Bless us, Father. 
Use us in these, these last days, Lord God. Help us to stand strong. Help us to let our light shine, Lord, as the days grow darker. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.